Let's take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 25. Uh, Taking a look uh, this morning at verses 12 through 18, Lord willing. The title of our message this morning from Genesis 25, 12 through 18, is entitled Death and the afterlife. It's sort of interesting how most people go throughout their day and yet they never give these subjects uh, much consideration. And yet the Bible says if you're focused on those subjects, you're a person of wisdom. Because of the reality of death, and the afterlife. We are at a transitional uh, point in the book of Genesis. Our focus from really the end of chapter 11 all the way through chapter 25, verse 11, which we completed last time, is on the life of this man, Abraham, who was a pivotal figure that God used to launch the nation of Israel. And last time we saw Abraham's death is recorded for us. First, his second marriage to Keturah and the various children and lineages that came out of that marriage. And then we have Abraham's death, verses 8 through 11, how Abraham breathed his last, a life full of years, And he was actually buried in Hebron in the cave of Machpelah, where his wife Sarah had been buried for some time a few years earlier. And how Abraham had purchased that cave of Machpelah from the Canaanites that dwelt in that particular part of Canaan. Of course, the land of Canaan later would become the land of Israel. Abraham died in faith, believing God's promise, because the only real estate he got, even though his descendants were promised a track of real estate from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq, from the Nile to the Euphrates, the only thing he had in, in terms of his actual ownership and possession by the time of his death was this little tiny burial plot. And so much of the promises given to Abraham are yet to be fulfilled. And so God is going to continue the promises through Abraham's son Isaac, and then after him Jacob, and then after Jacob the twelve tribes of Israel. We're going to see next time, Lord willing, the birth of Jacob and Esau, verses 19 through 26, the, after that, the selling of the birthright, verses 27 through 34. But before we can get to those sections of chapter 25, we have to interact here with something called Ishmael's Toledot. I mean, where else can you go in the church world and learn words like Toledot? What what does Toledot mean? We'll explain that in just a minute. But we have Ishmael's Toledot, verse 12, Ishmael's identification, verse 12, Ishmael's sons, verses 13 through 16, Ishmael's death, verse 17, and Ishmael's territory, verse 18. We'll start here with Ishmael's Toledot. Who exactly is Ishmael? Ishmael is not the... Son of promise. The son of promise is Isaac. Ishmael is the child that came into existence through the lineage between Abraham and Hagar. He is a child that came into existence because Abraham and Sarah wanted to give God a little help. Poor God can't keep his word. 
So God has promised us this child. I'll just go and impregnate my Egyptian handmaiden named Hagar. And from that union came forth Ishmael. And so Ishmael's Toledot really is asking what became of Ishmael. The word Toledot in Hebrew translated, these are the generations of, simply means what became of Ishmael and Ishmael's sons. So notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 25 and verse 12. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. So when it talks about records and generations, that's an English translation of the Hebrew word Toledot. The book of Genesis is filled with these, what are called Toledot, plural. These are what we believe written records. Some would say just oral records, but I actually happen to believe that these were things that were written down. And when you see the repetition of this expression, now these are the generations of, which is the repetition of the Hebrew word Toledot, you can divide the book of Genesis into 11 written records. We have an introduction to the generations, then the word Toledot is repeated, the generations of the heavens and the earth, then the word Toledot is repeated, the generations of Adam. These are things that Adam actually wrote down. And then we have the generations of Noah, things Noah wrote down and added to Adam's list or writings. Then we have the generations of Noah's sons. These are the things that Noah's sons wrote down, adding to the list, making it longer. The generations of Shem, the generations of Terah. And we've spent a lot of time with the generations of Terah, which was Abraham's father. That Toledot records the life of Abraham. And now in this chapter, we get two fresh, what are called Toledot. The generations of Ishmael, which we're going to study today, Genesis 25, verses 12 through 18. And then beginning in chapter 25, verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 35 will be the generations of Isaac. So you see what is happening here is as the biblical events are unfolding, the biblical characters themselves in many instances are writing down what transpired and the list or the historical record keeps growing. And it keeps getting passed down from generation to generation to generation. This happens in the book of Genesis 11 times. And this is how we believe, generally speaking, how the book of Genesis came into existence. By the time we get to Genesis 46, if we ever get there before the rapture occurs, Jacob is going to leave Canaan and travel to Egypt to find grain in the midst of famine, Genesis 46, and he's going to take all of those written records with him. And in the course of time, all of those written records are going to fall into the hands of a man named Moses. Moses is going to stitch all the material together. And he's going to give us what we call the book of Genesis. And then Moses will say, I'm not done yet because I experienced the book of Exodus. So he's going to write the book of Exodus. I'm not done yet because I experienced the book of Numbers. And he's going to write the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus. And then just before he's ready to die, as the word of God is given to him by the Lord, in terms of telling the generation entering Canaan under Joshua to obey God's word, Moses will say, well, the Lord gave me that information, and I'm going to write it down in the book of Deuteronomy. We believe that Moses is the primary author of the first five books of the Bible that we call Torah, sometimes called uh, Pentateuch, penta meaning five. But Moses was not yet on the scene when the events of Genesis happened. 
So how in the world was he able to take events that he wasn't there to see and put them and compile them into what we call the book of Genesis? The answer is Toledot. These are the generations of. Written records kept getting passed down. Jacob in Genesis 46 is gathering all of that and bringing it to Moses. There will be a man named Moses who will be set adrift on the Nile. He will be rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. He will be reared in the education of the Egyptians. Moses had the best education that the world had to offer at that time. And that was the providence and sovereignty of God. Acts 7 verse 22, Stephen makes reference to Moses' education. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. You see, Moses is not just the deliverer. He's not just the lawgiver. He is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And he is the one that God chose concerning the book of Genesis to take all of these written records and weave them together in a literarily, literarily skillful way to give us the book of Genesis. It, the book of Genesis is really... Eleven of these, these are the generations of. So Moses is the compiler of the book of Genesis. Even though he wasn't there to see the events that we're reading about in the book of Genesis. A lot of people have this idea that Moses sort of received some kind of vision from God. And that's how the book of Genesis came into existence. Because after all, that's how the book of Revelation came into existence, right? I mean, John on the island of Patmos did receive a vision from God. And Jesus says, write down what you see that we call the book of Revelation. And they think, well, Moses experienced the same thing. And maybe Moses did receive a vision from God. The Bible doesn't say that. What it says is he had at his disposals brought to him from Canaan, by Jacob, all of these written records that he compiled into the book that we're studying here called the book of Genesis. It's just that as he was doing the compiling, the Holy Spirit was superintending and guiding the process so that the book of Genesis could come to us in the year 2022. So the fact that Moses didn't receive a direct vision but was a compiler of existing documents, don't let that disturb you. Because that's exactly how the Gospel of Luke came into existence. We are actually teaching the book of Acts on Wednesday nights now. I would invite you to attend that study either in person or online. And we're covering these kinds of issues Because Acts is the sequel to Luke, Dr. Luke writing both. And Luke says at the very beginning of his prequel called the Gospel of Luke, in a prologue, Luke 1, 1 through 4, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Just as there were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. There are lots of written accounts of Jesus floating around, Luke says. I just took them and compiled them into the Gospel of Luke. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you. In consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, that's the addressee of Luke and Acts, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. He was not an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. So how did he know what happened? Well, there were pre-gospels. Written records, some call these gospelettes. Inspired books, no, but historical accounts of what happened. And Luke, as a skillful 
doctor, a physician, someone who is literate, took all of that information and weaved it together and gave us the Gospel of Luke. It's just we believe that even though Luke relied upon sources, the Holy Spirit was superintending the process. That is exactly how the book of Genesis came into existence. Moses is the compiler, relying upon pre-existing either oral records or written records. And so what we have here is one of those records, whatever happened to Ishmael and his descendants. You move from there down into um, verse 13, but even before we get to that, notice the words of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He says, the purpose of recording the death of Ishmael here, which is not a strict chronological sequence, is to continue the author's pattern in the book, which is to dispense with the non-seed line before dealing with the main seed line, in this case, Ishmael's half-brother, Isaac. So, by the time we get outside of verse 18, the whole spotlight is going to be on Isaac. Why the focus on Isaac? Because Isaac is the seed son. It's through Isaac the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are going to make progress into fulfillment, not Ishmael. But Ishmael was a real person that God loved. So whatever happened to Ishmael? Whatever happened to Ishmael's descendants? Well, we have this brief Toledot here, Genesis 25, verses 12 through 18, which is set up to answer that very question. So this, what we're reading here, is Ishmael's Toledot. And you look at the second part of verse 12 and you'll see Ishmael's identification. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. So that's where Ishmael came from. Ishmael is the product of works. He's the product of Abraham and Sarah not waiting upon God by way of faith, but trying to help God out. They came up with this plan in order to help God out. Um, we're going to have to get Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant, pregnant by you, Abraham. I notice Abraham doesn't sit there and argue with Sarah over that. Hey, sounds like a great idea. He does that. Hagar becomes pregnant. Ishmael is born. God loved Ishmael. God has a purpose for Ishmael. But whatever happened to Ishmael? Whatever happened to Ishmael's descendants? And essentially what happened is Ishmael had 12 sons. Just like Jacob, yet to be born, is going to have 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes. But before the 12 tribes came into existence, we have this record of Ishmael and his 12 sons. And the names of them are given there in verses really 13 through 15. So you have a brief introduction to these 12 sons, verse 13. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names. So what are their names? And I thought Ed Jones did such a good job pronouncing those. Much better, I think, than I can do. Well, here are 12 names, and the main point is when you track where they settled, they did not settle in the land of Canaan. They settled outside the land of Canaan because the land of Canaan belongs to who? Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Did you hear what I just said? The land of Canaan does not belong to Ishmael, but it belongs to Isaac. Islam, a Johnny-come-lately religion, which does not come into existence really until the 7th century A.D., has no problem 
taking the two and rewriting the passage and making it look like Ishmael is the son of promise and Isaac is not. This is one of the things that they do to gain claim over the current land of Israel. And yet, if you're a literate Bible reader, you say to yourself, well, that isn't true because the Bible says the exact opposite. You know, this idea where people are trying to do Chrislam, mix Christianity and Islam, and even one of the signs that you can read coming into this church, which was up for years and years and years, it had Islam and then it had Judaism and Christianity all going back to Abraham, and they were trying to say common Abrahamic faith. Islam and Christianity, Islam and Judaism, we're all on the same page. Let's all give each other a great big group hug. Folks, I hope you understand that when you try to mix Islam with anything in the Bible, it's like mixing oil and water. They're saying opposite things. Both can't be right. It is a logical impossibility for both to be right simultaneously because they're saying things that are polar opposites of each other. God has set up the Bible that way so that humans would be forced to make a choice. What does the Bible say? Choose this day whom you're going to serve. I like what it says at the end of the book of Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And yet, people think that somehow you can mix the two together. How do you mix the two together when Islam says Ishmael is the child of promise and the Bible says Isaac is the child of promise? Two completely different Ideas. So all of Ishmael's descendants in this brief Toledot are settling outside the land of Israel. So what are their names? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see their names described in verses 13b through 15 in the order of their birth. Nibioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Latur, Nafish, and looks like Kedemah. So what happened to these people? Well, Nabioth became the Nabateans in the Jordan. Kedar became an area that we call Northwest Arabia. Same with Abdil, Mipsam, Mishma, Duma, and Masa, Hadad, Edom, Tima, Northwest Arabia, Northwest Medina. It mentions here Jator, I think is how you pronounce that, that they went into the Transjordan. Where is the Transjordan? Transjordan is the land east of the Jordan River. So you'll notice that all of these people are not settling in the land of Canaan. The Bible is very clear on that. It doesn't say God doesn't love them. It doesn't say God didn't die for Jesus didn't die for their sins because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Salvation is open to them. Just like it's open to the entire human race. It's just that they're not the child of promise. The Abrahamic covenant in terms of its fulfillment will be fulfilled through a specific group of people, the nation of Israel. This is why Jesus, to the woman at the well, a Samaritan, in John 4, verse 22, will say, salvation is of the Jews. It was through the Hebrew line that the Messiah came. It was through the Hebrew line that the books of the Bible came into existence. And it will be through the Hebrew line that the millennial kingdom will be manifested on planet Earth. I realize that Satan is very jealous of this and he always comes up with some kind of counterfeit. But the truth of the matter is it's nothing but a counterfeit. Islam is a counterfeit. It's a satanic counterfeit. The action in terms of the outworking of God's purposes is the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. 
So we have an introduction to these 12 sons of Ishmael. We have their names. And then verse 16, we have their divisions. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 16. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages, by their camps, 12 princes according to their tribes. From Ishmael came 12 sons, names, villages, encampments, 12 princes according to the nations. But they're not the chosen line through which the Messiah will come. It's kind of interesting that Jacob, who's yet to be born, we'll see his birth next week, Lord willing, in the chapter anyway. From Jacob are going to come 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, Jacob's dozen. One of those tribes will be very special. It will have the name Judah. Judah will become a very big deal because through Judah, Genesis 49 verse 10 indicates the Messiah will be born. God is going to bring forth 12 tribes through Jacob. And it's interesting that like Jacob, who would have 12 tribes, Ishmael had 12 sons that also became 12 tribes. That is a prophetic fulfillment, what I just said. The fact that through Ishmael would come these 12 is something that God said he would do. All the way back in Genesis 17, verse 20. Genesis 17, verse 20, nearly eight chapters earlier. God said, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes. And I will make him a great nation. When God says something, it happens. What came forth from Ishmael? Not 11 princes. Not 13 princes. But 12. The elect nation? No. But this kingdom, this Ishmaelite kingdom from these 12 princes came forth because that's what God said will happen. I have to be honest with you that I've been, as I've been working my way through Genesis, I really thought I had some kind of understanding about how accurate God is. But going through the book of Genesis on my own, trying to study it, preparing to teach it, I can just tell you point blank that God means what he says and says what he means. Everything he says will happen. As I pointed out before, Jesus said this to the disciples in the upper room. He said in John 13, verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. And then a chapter later in John 14, verse 29, Jesus said, now I have told you before before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I've recommended numerous times this book by Dr. John Walvoord entitled Every Prophecy of the Bible. That's quite an ambitious title, by the way. And the man keeps his word. He covers every prophecy of the Bible, most of which have already been fulfilled in real time. And you read that book, and you'll just see God saying something, and it happens. God saying something, and it happens. God saying something, and it happens. That's what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room. He said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen this week. Passion Week, Holy Week. And when it happens in real time, right down to my death and resurrection, then you're going to sit back and you're going to say, wow, Jesus must be God. I'm ready to live for Jesus because he's given me evidence that he is true. And one of the greatest pieces of apologetics, which means defense of the faith, That we have is this propensity of God to give you in advance history before it happens. And when God moves his hand in real time, it materializes. Well, Andy, you know, I think you talk about Bible prophecy a little too much. You're always talking about the rapture, the millennial kingdom, Gog, Magog, 
you know, can't we just kind of move on to more other things, you know, like your best life now or whatever? (laughs) The reason I talk about prophecy so much relates to this track record. The prophecies yet to come will happen in real time because I've seen God make nine free throws in a row. I've watched it. And then he stands at the free throw line and he says, you think I can make the tenth one? Well, that's a no-brainer. You've got a track record. Now, if you missed five of nine, which is a better record of my basketball career, then I might have some doubts whether you can make the tenth one. But God makes every single one of them. Swish, swish, swish. Can I make the tenth one? Oh, that's easy, Lord. Obviously, you can make the tenth one because I have a track record. That's what Jesus in the upper room is giving to his disciples is a track record so that they could go out and build their lives upon this man Jesus to the point where many of them experience martyrdom. So what you're reading about here in real time is a fulfillment of prophecy right down to Ishmael and these 12 sons who became 12 princes. That's what God said would happen. He said that eight chapters earlier. And then you come to verse 17 where at the end of this Toledot here for Ishmael, Ishmael, Ishmael dies. So we have his age, we have his death, and we have the afterlife. That's why I entitled this sermon, Death in the Afterlife. It says, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. Back in verse 7, I believe it was, the exact age of Abraham was given when he died. Abraham at the age of death was 175 years. Here's another age. Ishmael was 137 years when he died. You'll notice the specifics of the biblical record. I mean, how did Moses know these ages? Well, he had the written records, the Toledot, that he pieced together and compiled. You have not only Ishmael's age, but you have a record here of his actual death. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and he died. You want to talk about prophecy? That's an outworking of prophecy too. Death. What did God tell our forebears in Eden? God was very clear. Genesis 2, verse 16, The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. What do you find in the biblical record? He died. He died. He died. He died. Why is that? Because that's what God said would happen. Genesis 3 verse 19, God said, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. From it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death spread to the whole human race because of the rebellion in Eden Because God said, this is going to happen. The interesting thing about the mortality rate is it's still 100%. I mean, if we're not the rapture generation, I hope we are. I can't promise we are. But if we are not the rapture generation, every single person in this room will die. And I remember talking to some physicians about this. One of them was at our church, Sugarland Bible Church, for a while, and he was in hospital runs and dealt with people that were dying all of the time, he says every every person or every woman, almost, almost to an individual, was shocked when it was their time to go. When they were told death is imminent, they were shocked. 
they thought, well, this thing called death, that just happens to other people. I mean, nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. And yet the Bible says we're under the sentence of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam all die, but so also in Christ were made alive. The mortality rate is 100%. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Notice the all there. That's not just y'all, that's all y'all. Because all sinned. In fact, did you know that right now you're dying? That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but through our, though our outer man is decaying. Do you realize you're decaying right now? If you don't believe me, just look at your high school yearbook pictures. But though our outer man is decaying, yet there's good news in it for the Christian. The inner man is being renewed day by day. What exactly happens when a person dies? Well, essentially what happens is the part of them that's designed to live forever, called the suke or the soul, separates from the soma or the material body. That's what happens. And if that is an unbelieving person, the soul goes right into eternal retribution. If the person is a believer, their soul goes right into the presence of the Lord. Boy, if that's what happens, we better think very clearly on this gospel. Because that's our only hope. Matthew 27, verse 50, says this of Jesus' death. Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. He gave up the ghost, as the King James said. Material and immaterial separated. This is what happened to Stephen in Acts 7, verse 59. It says they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Material and immaterial, separated. Because God has designed people to live forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, He has put eternity into the hearts of men. You may not want to live forever, but it doesn't matter. You're designed to live forever. And you have to live forever somewhere, separated from God or with God throughout all eternity. And whether you're in category A or category B is totally dependent upon what you do with this man, Jesus Christ, who is the only solution to this problem that is hanging over us, sort of like a sort of Diamocles waiting to fall at any minute, called death. You know, the interesting thing about YouTube <laughs> is there is some good that comes out of it. Because I like to go back to the 1980s and I like to watch, you know, some of the coaches and players that I used to follow during that time period. I was just watching a um, documentary on North Carolina State who, and sorry, Houston folks, but we did win the World Series, right? So there we go. But um, NC State upset U of H in the NCAA championship game. And I used to really enjoy watching Jim Belvano, the coach of NC State, because of his life and vigor and enthusiasm. And you watch these videos, and there he is at the prime of life after one of his greatest successes on YouTube, so alive, so so vibrant, so full of energy, and yet the years have passed, and he's dead. I mean, if you would have said to him, you know, in a few years, you're going to get cancer and die, I don't think he would have believed it. I don't think anybody in the sports world would believe it, because it, it was so 
counterintuitive. Looking at his level of energy and radiance. And that's the reality that we're living in. We don't, we don't think about death. Death seems like such a foregone reality. I mean, we're so blessed and happy and we have so many plans for our lives, but the Bible says it's coming. The mortality rate is 100%. Some sooner than others, but it's coming. The prospect and the reality of death. How different it is to live as a Christian who doesn't have to fear death because Jesus died in our place. Do you know that's why Jesus came into this world? To help us with the greatest fear that we have, death. I mean, what happens on the other side of the grave? Humanity's been afraid of that since the beginning. What the book of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Jesus came so that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death is still taking one person per customer. And it's coming for me and it's coming for you at some point. And yet I don't have to fear it because of what Jesus did. Paul says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, Philippians 1, 21 through 23, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. What, what happens to the Christian when they die? I don't know if I can explain it all. I just know what Paul says, it's much better. You're in a much better place. Because you're with the God that made you. And the God that redeemed you. And Paul whose life was under a death sentence many times in the book of Acts, had absolutely no fear of death. Go ahead and kill me. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. In fact, uh, the only reason I'm here is for your benefit, Philippians. Paul is almost kind of resentful towards him. I guess i got to stick around for you people to write the book of Philippians. But, you know, if I had my choice, I'd rather just check out and be with the Lord, for that is much better. Well, where did Paul go when he died? He went to somewhere much better. Well, Pastor, can you explain all the intricacies? No, I just know it's much better. But not so for the unbeliever. They go to a completely different place. Into eternal retribution. So Ishmael here dies. I mean, this is um, an outworking of what God said would happen to the human race. But what else does it say here? By the way, before I move ahead too fast, did you know God is creating a world that we're going to live in one day where there's no death in it at all? It's called the eternal state. Here's the things absent from the eternal state. One of the things that won't be there is death. Revelation 21 and verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, nor any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. In other words, although death is this ferocious enemy, it's just temporary. God is creating a world, it's in the last two chapters of the Bible, where there will be no death in it at all. In other words, he's reverting things back to how they were in Eden before we messed everything up. What's happening today is abnormal. The suffering of our world, the reality of death, is an abnormality. If you want to know what's normal, study Genesis 1 and 2 before sin and death entered. 
Study Revelation 21 and 22 before sin and death entered. That's normal. What's happening today is abnormal. And to my knowledge, the only worldview that teaches that is Christianity. Most of the other religions of the world, if not all of them, teach that death and suffering has always been and will always be. Christianity comes along and says, nope, it's finite. It's bound. It's on a leash. It won't last forever. In fact, Jesus has put forces into motion that is going to get rid of this prospect of death once and for all. I hope you're an optimist as a Christian because God has given you a worldview that's very optimistic. If you're into reincarnation or evolution, you just keep getting recycled back into this life depending on how you did in the last life. So I guess if you have a low-paying job in this life, you must have messed something up in the last life. Comfort one another with these words. There's, a, there's, there's like no comfort in these systems that people believe, and yet these systems of thought control the masses. It's so important to have your mind changed through God's word. And then, you know, you not, not only do you see death here, but you see the afterlife, because it says Ishmael in this little toledote was gathered to his people. Now, the line that is being sold in academia, and they tried to sell this to me to some extent when I was studying in graduate level theological education, is the afterlife is not mentioned in the time of Abraham. The afterlife or the hope of heaven doesn't become clear until you get to Daniel in the 6th century who said many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Abraham and his generation, they, they never taught on the afterlife. They didn't know anything about the afterlife. And I'm here to tell you that that whole mindset is a bunch of hogwash and nonsense. And the reason I say that is because of this expression here concerning Ishmael. He was gathered to his people. That same expression is used of Abraham in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 8, which says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. And people say, oh, he, he was just buried, you know, where his family was buried. As my professor, Dr. Toussaint, used to say, that dog won't hunt. Because Abraham was buried where? In Hebron. In the land of Israel. In the the cave at Machpelah that he purchased as a burial site. Sarah was buried there. Abraham was buried there. Well, where was Abraham's family from? Ur. Later on, Haran. 450 miles away. I mean, when it says here he was buried, buried and gathered to his people, what do they do? Take his bones and ship them to Ur? This can't be some kind of statement about, oh, he just was buried in the same place as the rest of his family because the biblical text tells you the exact opposite. Well, then what does it mean he was gathered to his fathers? It means he went in the afterlife, which, by the way, is just as real as this life, He went to where the righteous were. Those who died believing in a coming Messiah. He went to where Job was and and Noah and Shem and all the other characters we've been reading in the Bible. That's a statement about the afterlife. The concept of the afterlife was real in Abraham's day. It was not some sort of later... Innovation. And yet you watch the History Channel, A&E, Mysteries of the Bible, 
they'll have some guy come on there from Harvard lecturing you about, oh, Abraham, they didn't know anything about the afterlife. They won't bring a conservative on to counterbalance propaganda to give fair and accurate treatment. They would never have myself or somebody that has our perspective on it on. The whole thing is propaganda. Abraham knew exactly all about the afterlife. The Bible reveals the afterlife. The Bible reveals death and it reveals the afterlife. And it does it not at some later point in biblical history. It does it from the beginning. Because God says this is a problem that the human race has that I came into the world to fix. You don't appreciate the solution until you understand the problem. The reality of death, the reality of the afterlife. And because that's such a big problem, we need a Savior so we know exactly where we're going when we die. And we will die if we're not the rapture generation. The mortality rate is still 100%. The grim reaper, so to speak, is coming for every single one of us. Well, that's death stuff. That that happens to other people. doesn't happen to me. Really? The Bible says the opposite. Death spread like a cancer to the whole human race because of the rebellion that took place in Eden. And God said, that's exactly what's going to happen. We close here with verse 18, Ishmael's territory. Notice the first part there of verse 18. It says they, that's his 12 princes that were his descendants. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Europe, as one goes to Assyria. doesn't sound like they settled in the promised land, does it? The Bible says Ishmael's descendants settled a lot of places, but not the land of Israel. Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains this Toledot concludes by describing Ishmael's territory and descendants. They dwelled from Havilah to unto Shur, that is, before Egypt as you go towards Assyria. That means the territory extended from the Euphrates in the north to the Red Sea in the south and from the northern Sinai to the western border of Babylonia. Havilah was the southeast border of his territory located in northeast Arabia. Shur was the southwest border towards Assyria, giving the northern giving the northern border. Basically, this was the Arabian Peninsula that is described. That's where Ishmael's descendants went. Egypt, Shur, Havilah, Assyria, none of them are settled in that lighter blue area, the land of Canaan, which would become the land of Israel. For Islam to say the opposite is just to take the biblical text and just erase things you don't like. Remember whiteout? Ah, let's erase that. Put in what I want. People do that with the Bible all the time. It's a very sad thing. And if you find yourself doing it, you're in a dangerous position. Because Second Peter 3 talks about people who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. You say, well, pastor, what does destruction mean? I don't know, but it looks bad to me. I mean, I don't want to be going to destruction. So I'm not going to twist the Bible. I'm not here to correct the Bible. The Bible is here to correct me. You look at the second part of verse 18, and it says they set, watch this now, they settled in defiance of all his relatives. What does that mean, defiance? By the way, Keturah's sons didn't settle in the land of Israel either. Ishmael's descendants nor Keturah's descendants did not settle in the promised land because that's reserved for Isaac and his lineage. Where did they settle? They settled next door 
as neighbors in defiance of their relatives. What is this business about um, defiance? Defiance, it's translated defiance. Some of your English versions may read a little differently, but it means to fall or to fall upon, to live side by side, to live in a state of hostility against. They will not settle in the land of Israel, but they will settle side by side of the land of Israel in hostility to the nation of Israel. Well, guess what, folks? That's another fulfillment of prophecy. Genesis 16. A good nine or ten chapters before. Genesis 16, 11 and 12. This is what God said to Ishmael. That's what we're reading about here. Where did Ishmael's descendants settle? Genesis 16, verse 11 mentions Ishmael. Verse 12 says he, Ishmael, will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Well, where's he going to live? God said where he's going to live. He will live to the east of all of his brothers. Who are his brothers? The descendants of Isaac. Ishmael's descendants would live east of them in hostility towards them. And what you're seeing here in verse 18 is a outworking of the fulfillment of yet another Bible prophecy. In fact, you pick up your newspaper today and you see the exact same thing. That green area, those are Islamic countries. That little red dot, you see that? That's Israel. This is what God said would happen. They would live east and in hostility against the Jewish people. This is really the kind of thing that's going to trigger the battle of Armageddon and other end time events. And the world community says, because it's controlled, the United Nations to a large extent, by a group called the OIC, which is an Islamic coalition. That's why all of the resolutions at the United Nations go against the state of Israel. The United Nations and the world community says, well, if Israel just give up, gave up a little more territory... We'd have peace in the Middle East. I don't know if they're looking at the same map I'm looking at. By the way, you'll never see this map on cable television. You'll never see this on CNN. Not that any of you watch CNN anyway. You'll never see it on MSNBC. You'll never see it on Fox. I've never seen it even on conservative outlets like Newsmax and OIC. Because it's just a geography lesson. You want Israel to give up more? When she is surrounded by hostile, theocratic dictatorships that have in their own charters the goal of driving Israel into the sea, you want Israel to give up more territory? And yet, you look at that map, why be surprised by it? I can't believe this is happening. Why? That's what God said would happen. Ishmael's descendants would live to the east and against Israel. So we're at the conclusion. There's your chapter review. And next week you want to take a look at Genesis 25, verses 19 through 26, where Jacob is going to be born. Death and the afterlife. Two tremendous subjects for a human being to contemplate and consider because they're realities. And the wonderful thing about the gospel, which means good news, is Jesus fixed the problem. Jesus and only Jesus fixed this problem of death and the afterlife through what he did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross and by trusting in him and him alone.
You may die. You may go into the afterlife. But absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How would you like to leave here with that kind of certainty? I can't give it to you, but Jesus can. Jesus says anyone who believes in me, trusts in me, has this certainty. And I can't think of a greater certainty to have. And so you can trust Christ for salvation right now, even as I'm speaking. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord, where the Lord convicts you of your need to take Jesus by way of faith as your Savior. And you respond in your human heart by way of volition and trust exclusively in Him. And if that's something that you're doing now on the authority of God's Word, you've just altered your eternal destiny. If it's something you need more information on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for the disclosures you've given to us about death and the afterlife. I pray that this message would go out to many people in the building, out online, people listening after the fact, that they may trust in your provision, which is the best news that you've ever given to the human race. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.